your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians 13, page 1234. We're using the Adoration Bibles, 1234. We're going to read the whole chapter together. We're going to give our special attention to the very last verse of the chapter, to Paul's benediction in verse 14, in connection with Lord's Day 8 of our Catechism and the Doctrine of the Trinity. It's one of the benedictions that we often use in addition to that of the ironic blessing. And we know that God granted to ministers the privilege, uh, already back in the days of Aaron, to, to place His name upon the people of Israel. And we see a fuller expression of that name this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy word. This is the third time that I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when, when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For He was crucified in weakness, but He lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves? that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's turn also to Lord's Day 8 of our Catechism, page 875 in the back of the song books, page 209 in the Forms and Prayers books. read the two questions and answers responsively. Coming on the heels of Lord's Day 7, the question, what is true faith? And what are the contents of true faith, namely the Apostles' Creed? We now come to a consideration of the Creed, and that's what the Catechism will be doing for us from Lord's Days 8 through Lord's Day 22. But the introductory Lord's Day, Lord's Day 8, begins on the Creed with this question, how are these articles divided? into three parts, God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Question 25. 
Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true, eternal God. This the Church of Christ does believe and confess throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's been suggested that perhaps the words of Psalm 139, verse 6, should bookend every thought, every discussion, every sermon and book that seeks to convey the mystery of the Trinity. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That was the conclusion that King David came to when he considered who God was, when David meditated on who God was, on how God was, was omniscient and, and omnipotent and omnipresent, he said, such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It is, it is high. I cannot attain it. He said, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How, how vast is the sum of them. This is really the spirit in which we should come the doctrine of the Trinity this morning, because the doctrine of the Trinity is not just some cold doctrine for the theologians to sort out in their studies, but the doctrine of the Trinity is, is an exceedingly warm doctrine that lies at the very heart of the Christian faith. It's a doctrine that offers great comfort and assurance in a world of much fear and anxiety. Isn't it interesting that when the disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, that in the midst of all their fear and anxiety, there in the upper room, what did Jesus speak to them about? Jesus spoke to them about the Trinity in order that He might calm their, their troubled hearts. He spoke to them about the Father's house and how in the Father's house there, there were many rooms. He, he told them, He promised them that whatever they, they asked the Father in His name would surely be granted to them. In his high priestly prayer, he prayed to the Father in the presence of his disciples, saying, this is eternal life, that they may know you, O Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He, he went on to pray, Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one even as we are one. There in the upper room, Jesus assured them that they did not need to be afraid on account of the fact that he was not going to leave them as orphans. But he promised to send them a helper, a divine helper, the Holy Spirit, who would, who would bring to their remembrance all the things that they had learned from Jesus, who would, who would guide them into all truth. And as they were about to, to go into the world, a hostile world, a hateful world, with, with the good news of the gospel, Jesus assured them that, that this helper, the Holy Spirit, would, would go with them and he would go before them to convict the world concerning sin and, and righteousness and judgment. And there in the upper room, of course, Jesus also reminded them of who He was, that, that He really was the Son of God, that He was the way and the truth and the life, and that, and that no one could come to the Father except by Him. He said, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He said, the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. He said, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, for I 
have overcome the world. Jesus calmed the hearts of his troubled disciples by speaking to them about the Trinity. And such is the manner in which he calms our hearts still today. Such was the manner in which he, he sought to comfort the Corinthians when the apostle closed his letter, saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. To be sure, we can be tempted to think that there's not so much in the doctrine of the Trinity for us or for our lives today, but how crucial a right understanding of the Trinity really is. As St. Augustine once said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious. But he also said that in no other subject is the discovery of truth more profitable. From the doctrine of the Trinity we come into contact with the God of the Bible. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we come to know the God who has created us and who has redeemed us, who has sanctified us. In the doctrine of the Trinity, we come to see how richly blessed we really are, how it is that we possess the grace of the Son, we possess the love of the Father and the, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. As we work our way through the truth of this, Lord, I'd like for us to consider three things together this morning. Considering in the first place the church's dogma, and then the second place the church's deliverance, and then in the third place the church's doxology. But in the first place we're going to consider the doctrine itself. What do we mean when we say that we believe in one eternal God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we confess here in question answer 25. The question is asked of us, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And there the answer is given that this is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. To be sure, we as finite creatures cannot grasp the heights or the depths of this doctrine. We cannot plumb the depths of it or fully comprehend it. But we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity not because we are so smart or able to understand everything about it, but we believe in the Trinity because this is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. We, of course, recognize that the Bible doesn't actually use the word Trinity, but but as controversies arose by misusing the Bible, the church made use of the word Trinity to, ca to capture the truth of the Word of God. As God reveals Himself from Genesis to Revelation, He reveals Himself to us as, as the triune God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He reveals Himself to us as, as the God of Lord's Day 8, one eternal God who eternally exists in three distinct persons. That it's not the case that, that our God is merely a God who reveals Himself in three different ways. It's not that sometimes He's the Father, and, and other times He's the Son, and, and other times He's the Holy Spirit. That was the ancient history of the ancient heresy of modalism. The modalists said that, that they were not three persons in God, but, but just three modes or, or forms of God. But at the baptism of the Lord Jesus, we see each of the three persons present at the same time. We see the Son in the water. We, 
we hear the Father's voice speaking from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We read of the Holy Spirit descending upon him in the form of a dove. Nor do we confess that each person is one-third God, as others have tried to suggest. But each person is a fully God. One person isn't more God than another person. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each true and eternal God. As we confess in Article 8 of the Belgian Confession, the Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things visible and invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit each has his own subsistence distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. This is the church's established dogma concerning the Trinity. Boys and girls, perhaps that's an unfamiliar word to you, the word dogma. For those of you in Mr. Mulder's Sunday school class might want to to write that word down, the word dogma. Dogma is an important word. It's a word that that speaks to the church's official summary of what the Bible teaches. When we use the word dogma, we're saying this is the church's official summary concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. And as such, the, the dogma of the Trinity is not something that we can simply disregard or, or deem to be irrelevant, not really so important for our lives. But as we confess in the Athanasian Creed, whoever desires to be saved should above all else hold to this Catholic or universal faith. For anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic or universal faith that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. One essence, three distinct persons. This is what we confess about the triune God, since this is how He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. As I said before, it's easy for us to read these articles. It's easy for us to to hear the language of the unity of God's essence and the plurality of His persons and to think, that these things are perhaps best left to the theologians. But we need to recognize this morning that it's only when we contemplate the Trinity that we come to know who God really is. And as Herman Boving said, it's only when we know who God really is that we can come to know who God is for us, for fallen humanity. And so as we consider the church's dogma concerning the Trinity, it is particularly necessary that we do so, says Boving, with a tone of holy reverence and childlike awe and wonder. We should approach the doctrine of the Trinity as as Moses did the burning bush, hiding his face in reverential fear. We should be as as Isaiah crying out, woe is me, I I am undone. I I have come to see something of, of the glory of the God of the universe. We should all say with David, such knowledge is is too wonderful for me. It is is beyond me. It is is high. I, I cannot attain it. We must always remember, writes Bavink, that as we study the triune God, we're not just dealing with a doctrine 
about God. We aren't just dealing with some abstract concept or, or idea of God, which man has contrived to help us understand God. But rather, in treating the Trinity, says Bob Inc., we're dealing with, with God Himself. And this is really what Lord's Day 8 of our Catechism is endeavoring to show us here. As we confess in Article 9 of the Belgic Confession, these things we know from the testimonies of the Holy Scripture, as well as from the effects of the persons, especially those from those we feel within ourselves. You see, as we make this confession our confession, as we live in light of this confession, God confirms what He has revealed in His Word by, by impressing it upon our hearts. So that when, for example, we, we go to God in prayer, we know, we experience the reality that, that we really do have a Father in heaven who hears us. When we come to the Lord's table, we really do experience communion with the Son who, who offers Himself to us in the bread and wine as we partake of Him by faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls, as Article 35 of the Belgic Confession says. When we have given into sin, we experience the truth of God's Word as the Holy Spirit convicts our consciences of sin, and as He leads us to repentance by directing our, our eyes to look away from ourselves and to look instead to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is forgiveness and pardon. There is no greater joy or comfort, says Bobbing, than to believe in this God, to trust Him, and to expect everything from Him. Thus, Bobbing concludes the confession of the Trinity is the sum of the entire Christian religion. Without it, neither the doctrine of creation nor of redemption, nor of sanctification can be purely maintained. For every departure from this confession leads to error in all the other heads of doctrine. For we can truly proclaim the mighty works of God, writes Bobink, only when we recognize and confess them as the one great work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For in the love of the Father and the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is contained the whole salvation of men. And this brings us to the second thing we want to consider together this morning, namely the, the church's deliverance. In question and answer 21, we're asked about how these articles of the creed are divided. And there we confess that they're divided into three parts, God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And so, in the doctrine of the Trinity, you could say we have the, the story of the church's deliverance, that the very same God who created us is the very same God who has also redeemed us. He's the same God who, who sanctifies us to be His very own. And this is how the Apostle Paul closes his epistle, by directing our hearts and minds to this God, to the triune God, and, and by assuring us that we have this rich blessing from God to these Corinthians who have, who have sinned much, who, who need to be restored, these Corinthians who have gone through much, God speaks to the apostle and He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In the first place, Paul assures us of the grace or of the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Commenting on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Charles Hodge writes, everyone feels that this is precisely what he as a guilty sinner needs. And how true that is, how desperate we are for the grace of the Lord Jesus. Indeed, there's no hope in the world without it. How amazing it it must have been for these Corinthians to hear Paul say in verse 3 that Jesus was not weak in dealing with them, but that he was indeed powerful among them. How encouraging it must have been for them to be reminded that although Jesus was crucified in weakness, he now lives by the power of God. How amazing, how life-altering it must have been for them to hear Paul say in verse 5, and do not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is now in you. The Lord Jesus is in us, and His grace, we discover, is always with us. In the midst of all our misery, we have His mercy. In the midst of all our sadness and sorrow, we have His compassion and sympathy. In the midst of all our weakness, we have His strength. In the midst of all our loneliness, we have His abiding presence. Therefore, writes one pastor, Jeff Thomas, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can uphold you and strengthen you. The grace of the Lord Jesus can comfort you and keep you and make you more than triumphant in every trial. This grace of the Lord Jesus can keep you from falling, and it will present you faultless before His presence with exceeding joy. Whatever is good for you, His grace can provide. It is sufficient grace abundant grace, inexhaustible grace. When Charles Spurgeon heard the words of Christ, the Apostle Paul, my, my grace is sufficient for you, he was, he was aghast at his own unbelief, so much so that he, he ran home to, to study the verse more carefully. And upon doing so, he writes, it finally dawned upon me what the text was saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Why, I said to myself, I should think it is. And I burst out into laughing, he says, for it seemed to make unbelief so absurd. It was as though some little fish, being very thirsty, was troubled over drinking the river dry. To think that Christ's grace could be insufficient, Spurgeon said, would be like a man standing on the top of a mountain saying, I fear that I shall exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. But the, but the earth cries, breathe away, O oh man, my atmosphere is sufficient for you. And such is the nature of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace that keeps coming to us to protect us and to preserve us day by day. It's grace that never runs out. In the first place, Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In the second place, Paul assures us of the love of God, the Father. The love of the Father, you could say, is the source of our deliverance. Most often in the New Testament, when the writers speak of God, they're referring to God the Father. And the love of the Father, you could say, is really the source of our deliverance. It was the Father's love that, that was made manifest in sending the Son. As Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, it was... The Father who, who showed His love for us while we were still enemies, sending Christ to, to die for us. 
as we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a righteous treasure. When the Apostle Paul meditates upon who the Father is, the Father's love is what first comes to mind. For God is love, as John says in his first epistle. Love is at the very core of who God is. God is love through and through. And this is what Paul wants to press upon these Corinthian believers. That it was in love, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2, it was in, or in Ephesians 1, that it was in love that God predestined us from before the foundation of the world. He wants to assure these Corinthian believers that the love of God is with them and that it always will be. He wants them to know that the Father's love will never let them go. And in the third place, Paul assures us of the fellowship or the communion of the Holy Spirit and how we need this also. For the communion of the Holy Spirit is that which brings Christ to us and that which brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The communion of the Holy Spirit is that which has brought us together this morning as members of Christ's body. The communion of the Holy Spirit is that which sanctifies us in Christ and imparts to us all that we have in Christ, namely the forgiveness of our sins and the renewing of our lives. As the form for baptism reminds us, it is as a result of the Holy Spirit's work within us that we shall finally be presented without the stain of sin among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. It was granted to the Apostle Paul to leave the Corinthian believers with this benediction, with the assurance of the blessing of the triune God. It's the very same privilege that, that ministers have today. We recognize that there is no magical power to the benediction. That the benediction is indeed the proclamation of God's grace and love and fellowship for His people. And so when the minister pronounces the, the benediction upon God's people, he's affirming in Christ's name that, that the triune God really is with them, that His grace and love and fellowship really is with those whose trust is in Him. In this reality, this assurance ought to drive the church to doxology. When we consider the, the mystery of the Trinity, when we meditate on the wonder of all wonders that this triune God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, it ought to drive us to doxology and praise. Commenting on this Lord's Day, Andrew Kivenhoven writes that the deepest difference between believers and unbelievers is that believers know God. All the other differences are merely the result of this one fact. But what is the highest thing that we can do with this knowledge, he asks? What is the highest thing that we can do with this knowledge of the triune God? Is it not to praise Him? Is it not to worship Him and to adore Him? Shouldn't our knowledge of the Trinity drive us to say with the psalmist in Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name be glory given. Indeed, all our talk about God, all of our books we read about God, all the sermons I preach about God have missed the point if, 
if they have not helped us more and more to praise God. The knowledge of God should drive us all to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The greatest moments in our lives, writes one pastor, are those moments in which we spontaneously come to the hymn of praise. Praise to the Lord that all that is within me adore Him. For the meaning of life is found in God, he writes, and so your greatest day is not payday or graduation day, but your greatest day is when you start praising God. That's when you are truly human, free, and great. For in the doxology, he says, you climb the stairway to heaven and suddenly you find it easy to let go of everything, bread and butter, paycheck and furniture, money and misery, yes, even sickness and sin. My God, how wonderful Thou art. Thy majesty, how bright. This should be the, the song of our life. My God, how wonderful Thou art. That should be our song if we watch the sunset tonight. That should be our song as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. This God, the triune God, has delivered us in order that we might Worship Him aright in order that the entirety of our lives might be lived as a doxology of praise to Him. May God Himself grant us the grace to live in this way, to live lives that are unto the glory of His glorious grace. Surely He who has called us is faithful, He will surely do it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again in the name of the Son and by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. And we bless you, God, in three persons, blessed Trinity. Lord, we pray that the wonder of who you are would grip our hearts and minds we would indeed say with David such knowledge is too wonderful for us, that it is high that we cannot attain it. Lord, we pray that the knowledge of who you are would drive us to living lives of doxology and praise. For you are the God who has delivered us. You're the God in whom there is exceeding grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, inexhaustible grace. You're the God of infinite love, overflowing love. And you're the God of intimate communion and fellowship by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would experience the wonder of who you are even now as we come to the table, that we would feel uh, the effects of your presence as Father, Son, and Spirit as we partake of the bread and the wine. May you lift our hearts up to heaven to experience your grace. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For song of response.